Welcome back to the Earth Hotel. Tonight we find ourselves in room 5B, where we'll be discussing two oppressive pieces of legislation in the state of Alabama regarding transgender people. Before we begin, I want to give a content warning, as this essay must address a whole host of awful phenomena and their consequences. Because that's where we are. These include transphobia and homophobia, sexual assault, political violence, sadism, genocide, and suicide. If you find yourself rolling your eyes at the thought of a content warning about subjects like those, I'd take a hard look at your own character and figure out why those things aren't troubling concepts for you to think about. And if you're my esteemed guests whom I will be discussing, well, put down the boner pills and pick up your big boy pants, because I'm very glad you've joined us. You can find the text version of this essay and further deprogramming notes at theearthhotel.org, under the header Articles and Essays, and through the link included here. So let's get started. The essay is titled, Anti-Trans Legislation and the Genocide of Being. Introduction I've been putting off writing this analysis for weeks, out of a sense of futility. Today, the day that I'm recording this audio and releasing this article, Alabama Senate Bill 10 has been passed by the Health Committee of the State House and moves on to approval by the House. I've remained certain it will pass since I heard of its introduction to the Senate, and it filled me with a dread that I've sadly become used to feeling in Alabama. Usually when I find myself procrastinating important work, my stress originates from a lack of active being. When I'm not capable of putting down new floor to walk upon in the living out of my self-imposed purpose, I am paralyzed in the limbo of no new words, no constructed thoughts building to something, no progress in the writing up of rooms, no present exploration of my being. When the suspense finally breaks like a fever, sometimes it is with an easy series of goals, fulfilled once my will and health return. Sometimes I am broken, or nearly done, when I am reduced to a stalling passivity until my mind feet start moving again. I have found that, at the moment I am broken and submit to this absurdity, I am almost always presented soon after and not before with a miracle of timing, a kismet kiss of new information waiting just beyond my field of vision for the right time to present itself. The wait is absurd and painful and negating. The revelations that come are usually terrifying and also brilliantly true and thus beautiful. This article is the product of a time when it was worth the wait. Part 1. The Room I Am In The suffering is the point, I thought. Simply the fascism of dehumanizers, appealing to their bigoted base in the culture war and big quotes they create and signify for their own ends and profits. This often repeated maxim that the suffering is the point of bills like Alabama House Bill 1, Senate Bill 10, and the dozens of other anti-trans legislation pending or completed in the U.S. today, rings true in that, with their rotted hands somewhat burned and tied by slight democratic domain in the federal government, amid the constant shifting, breakdown, and reconstruction of the ongoing grift by the GOP and those in their interests, these human jackals will seek whatever vulnerable people they can find to squeeze for the twisted victory of their ends. No opportunity for revenge, exploitation, and cruelty will they waste. Criticism of hypocrisy here is useless because these people have no shame. They have betrayed the human mission of being and surrendered themselves to the absurdity of existential subhumanity. They are not tied to the human causes which are those of free people. They are promised to higher orders of oppression. 
The definition of subhumanity which I use here is a technical philosophical one used by Simone de Beauvoir in The Ethics of Ambiguity. You can find that in the description. Appealing to morality or compassion is also useless for this reason. From the publicized testimonials and state floor testimony of transgender youth and their parents, to that of healthcare professionals and legal experts, the whole of this criticism and activism is entirely valid. It also constitutes a negated action, the one that is necessary on all levels except the foundational. These testimonies are not only well-intentioned, but ill-founded in the most humane way, founded on the basis of morality, compassion, reason, or justice. Common discourse, and perhaps real sense, would say that stooping to the level of evil makes one susceptible to that evil. This is a false equivalency between active evil in the world and a hypothetical conception of evil that transcends the incompleteness of those principles I listed. When active evil, in the form of these lawmakers and hateful scum, places itself in the position to define, amend, and enforce their vision of morality for other people, to enslave by violence those people to their means, this position must be challenged and their control annihilated. So, while they have deemed themselves worthy to make and destroy the lives of others that they will never have the pleasure to know, people like myself who have nothing to lose might as well step up and judge them. Not from a seed of compassion or morality, but from their own vulnerabilities and emptiness on display. I will judge them from the void. For those who are new to the program, I will define myself as much as necessary to this endeavor. I'm a 26-year-old trans woman, raised south of Birmingham and living in the city. I am a musician, artist, and ragged philosopher. I will not state any political affiliation, as it is irrelevant to the arguments I will be making. My demographic is worker, white, transgender, bisexual, female. I speak to this issue as part of my ongoing project, The Earth Hotel Podcast. My work has been an exploration of the spectacle, as laid out by situationist Guy Debord, though I went years without knowing it. That is, an analysis of the fractured and distorted reality in which we find ourselves. I will address the issues of this article in terms of existentialist definitions and meta-analysis of the people involved. And with all that accounted for, I will explain why I am glad that I spend some time in the void, waiting for this article to will its completion through me. Tuesday, March 9th. A story broke in Alabama that Republican State Senator Tom Watley had used his professional Twitter account to like a hilariously explicit tweet by a transgender non-binary sex worker. A nude image with the caption, quote, I love my new fat G-cup titties, heart emoji, end quote. The tweet was liked by Senator Watley on February 15th, 2021, and a month later, today, I discovered this story after several days of agonizing over this writing. In the interim, on March 2nd, Watley was one of the many GOP senators that voted yay on SB 10, the Senate's arm of the... of the Vulnerable Child Compassion and Protection Act. They are fighting like hell for these bills with the frothing passion of decades of lucrative bigotry. If you aren't familiar with the legislation or its counterpart in the House, I'll read here a thorough analysis taken by Rose Astra's March 11th article on liberationnews.org. Quote, The bill bans puberty blockers and hormone therapies for transgender youth. This vital medical care alleviates the psychological and physical harm by going through puberty on hormones incongruent with one's gender. Doctors, pharmacists, and other medical professionals who continue to provide this necessary trans-affirming health care to minors would face up to 10 years in prison. The bill also requires school counselors to out students who talk about gender dysphoria 
by reporting any conversations to their parents. An equivalent bill is now working its way through the state's House of Representatives. Just to repeat that, they're denying children and youths the access to mental health care as well as physical, and threatening to jail doctors for following their profession by treating their patients according to their own needs. These are lawmakers, in this case Watley is an attorney, no surprise, that are making life-altering and in some cases certainly life-ending decrees as to the freedoms of vulnerable children. Part 2. Republican Genocidal Intent and Its Conditions The insistent claim of these people is that they are protecting values or families and presently the children that they are persecuting. Doublespeak and dog whistles, all of it. Convenient lies that are very beneficial to them, not in the pursuit of a human goal, but for the negation of other human lives. This is not conjecture. These are lies that are such by the contrast to the evidence and humanity of their opponents and victims. They are hurting people on purpose and lying on purpose. So what is the goal? There are myriad stops along the way. Money, influence, dumb popularity, and acclaim from their accomplices, access to bigger and fancier knives to plunge in the back of the world that we are forced to share with them as they try to remove us from it, and by us I mean anyone who disagrees with them. It's a commonplace occurrence to aim the word fascist at real actual literal fascists or garden variety bigots. In fact, fascist sympathy, behavior, rhetoric, and action are so pervasive and invisibly common, especially in these circles in which also run closeted clan, Nazi insurrectionists, etc., that the use of the word fascist is more likely to be used to discredit the person who correctly identifies and opposes those fascists. We call those anti-fascists. Than it is to have the effect of identifying those real-life self-confessed Nazis and other atrocity seekers and bringing them to justice. It's curious that. Fascism is defined, because I have to define fascism, as, quote, a form of far-right authoritarian ultra-nationalism characterized by, in part, forceful suppression of opposition, and strong regimentation of society. End quote. The end goal of fascism is to eliminate all non-fascists. Fascist violence seeks to accomplish that goal, and this violence takes the form of physical, psychological, social, and economic oppression, denial of life-sustaining services, ghettoization, systematic incarceration, and methodical elimination by deportation or extermination. These are the literal effects as intended of this legislation of the rhetoric of these lawmakers and their supporters, and the cumulative shift of society toward their design by their efforts, step by step. If you wish to make someone's life harder on purpose, in the name of values that are only yours to enforce by violence, to the point where they wish to die and indeed do remove themselves by suicide, that's just genocide with extra steps, and all the more convenient for those who seek it. This is not an emotive claim, nor an exaggeration. This is an objective, verifiable, observable claim. I will cite proof of my claim that theirs is, in a true sense, a genocidal intent. From Astra. According to a 2018 study published in the American Academy of Pediatrics, 50.8% of trans male teenagers, 29.9% of trans female teens, and 41.8% of non-binary trans teens had attempted suicide. Another study published earlier this month in the same journal showed that suicidal ideation was far lower in trans teens who received gender-affirming care, especially pubertal suppression, than in those who did not. IV noted, quote, Trans children are incredibly vulnerable because coming out at an age when you don't have legal bodily autonomy 
puts you in a lot of danger. As the Endocrine Society found, youth with gender dysphoria often experience significant trauma at the onset of their endogenous pubertal process. Not uncommonly, gender dysphoria first emerges with the onset of puberty. The report continues, With the high frequency among transgender youth of mental health challenges, including anxiety, depression, social isolation, self-harm, drug and alcohol misuse, many providers view early treatment as life-saving. The reporting requirements for school counselors in this bill also endangers trans youth, many of whom face abuse at the hands of transphobic members of their family. Trans youth who face neglect and abuse often run away or are kicked out of their homes. A shocking 40% of unaccompanied homeless youth in the U.S. are LGBTQ, roughly 700,000 people. The National Coalition for the Homeless notes that LGBT individuals experiencing homelessness are often at a heightened risk of violence, abuse, and exploitation compared with their heterosexual peers. Transgender people are particularly at physical risk due to a lack of acceptance and are often turned away from shelters. In some cases, signs have been posted barring their entrance. End quote. To emphasize that I am using genocide literally, not emotionally, here is the Merriam-Webster's definition. The deliberate and systematic destruction of a racial, political, or cultural group. The UN definition is very similar, but it adds partial or total deliberate and systematic destruction. This is not simply killing outright. It is the creation of conditions that provide for the systemic destruction, in this case in the form of abuse at the hands of transphobic family members, people whom I can only assume in many cases belong to the ultra-conservative constituency that voted these hateful bastards into power, to whom they are appealing with the social legislation. So in a way, these parents are pointing their political power at their own children. It comes in the form of hate crimes, in denial of housing or aid, and in the criminalizing of their transitions into a state of being that is not only theirs to thrive by alone, but one that is the only livable option for them, an interference with their relationship to the world by the state. The suffering, the cruelty, isn't the point. It's the convenient byproduct. The point is to provide the means and conditions which, followed to their logical conclusion, would result in the wholesale disenfranchisement and destruction of this people, the legalization of their extermination. Our extermination. Mine, and that of my friends, my peers, and countless others that I have not had the pleasure to know. This is sought not only in this state, but nationally, methodically, exhaustively, if these fiends have their way. Their will is our death and these efforts are one of many steps they are taking and will continue to take toward that death. Regarding conditions, I read from Astra again. In November 2020, the FBI released statistics for 2019 that showed that anti-transgender hate crimes had increased 18% from 2018. Fucking wonder why. Although they will not release statistics for 2020 until later this year, homicides of transgender people in 2020 increased at least 76% compared to 2019. Most of these victims were black and Latina transgender women, and these statistics likely do not even tell the full story. Only 14% of law enforcement agencies surveyed by the FBI participated. That is, only 14% of law enforcement agencies surveyed by the FBI chose to participate. Because we can trust the cops to regulate themselves. As Liberation News reported last year, the pivot towards trans healthcare bans comes as a new strategy after the bathroom bills repeatedly failed or were ruled unconstitutional or illegal. These bills had a range of negative effects on working youth and adults. 
In addition to exposing transgender people to harassment in public vulnerable spaces, these bathroom bills, in addition to bans on trans girls' participation in sports, severely limited the ability of transgender youth to fully participate in their education. More generally, bills of this type also made working conditions for transgender people, already subject to high rates of employment discrimination, in some cases untenable." End quote. Enforced homelessness, or the conditions thereof, often results in death, unrecoverable injury, increased persecution, and often incarceration, often in prisons where they are subjected to conditions and treatment that the UN defines as crimes against humanity, especially in Alabama, which often includes rape and assault, often of that of transgender women forced into men's prisons. This is my own assessment, but the evidence is extant. Additionally, these bills are already illegal on a federal level and will certainly be ruled unconstitutional. But the law is not the point either. The mechanisms of oppression are not held within the law, but adopt and use it when they can. The dog-whistling and cultural warfare are only meta-tools to warp the system which includes law and may co-opt it. The appeal to the base is necessary because it is the base that gives them the passage and eventually the legal authority to their ends. I'm adding off the top of my head here the immense amount of election tampering and voter suppression that the GOP are working on right now, in the lead-up to the 2022 midterms. The barrier between the present moment and those ends which they seek is very tentative. I hope we finally have figured that out this year. These efforts are widely institutional, and establishment opposition is scarce. For example, the Democratic Party in Alabama is corrupt to the point of negation allegedly denying candidates funding without various hoop-jumping and palm-sucking. Anecdotal evidence suggests that former candidate Doug Jones received little or no funding or support from his party. Incidentally, his loss to the real Prince of Ignorance, Tommy Tuberville, directly impacts this issue. Tuberville fought for an anti-trans sports bill to be included in the latest COVID relief package, taking time to hold up aid from a maligned citizenry and furthering the darkness we've reviewed here that everyone is feeling. Most state and federal Republican congressional candidates in Alabama went unopposed and used their power to oppress vulnerable populations, which they may not see as subhuman vermin, but the most vocal and aggressive of their supporters do. It's a race, not to the bottom, but towards the total destruction of their undesirables. The underclass that they are endeavoring to make is not just that of trans people, though we are the cultural button du jour to push. It is the left, in scare quotes, wholesale, Democrats, Antifa, and civil rights activists that they call dangerous riotous radicals, before they resort to outright Nazi dog whistles like cultural Marxists serving the New World Order. They mean the Jews. When people say cultural Marxists or New World Order, or reptilians, they mean the Jews. One can tune into 105.5 WBRC in Birmingham on any given day and hear this rhetoric endlessly the long-term cultivation of a collective other, an underclass if they have their way, and they are. Not only along political lines, this oppression and opposition includes women, non-heterosexuals, non-whites, healthcare professionals, workers, children, and the poor. You remember a couple years ago when it was feminists? Remember when it was SJWs after that? Remember snowflakes? Now it's all of the left. It's anyone to the left of them. And this is intentional. It's a long-term strategy. Again from Astra. In the case of the Alabama law, State Senator Shay Shelnut, the bill's sponsor, advocates for policies that harm children and women in general. Shelnut, unconcerned with the risks children face from COVID-19, is an anti-masker 
who was in favor of unsafe forced school reopenings. He recently sponsored a bill to end Alabama's mask mandate, and even went so far as to sponsor a bill that would ban county health departments from establishing their own protocols for addressing the pandemic. What was it that I said about fascism and the stiff regulation of society? In addition to the prolific activity as a legislator putting children and the general public at risk, Shelnut has made a point throughout his career of targeting all of women's health care, including reproductive access. He campaigned so strongly on defending the abortion ban in Alabama that he included it in his platform. Alabama has one of the strongest anti-abortion policies. Recent actions by the state legislature have shut down nearly all abortion clinics. I will not back down. Shelnut and others like him do not act alone and have the support of reactionary think tanks and nonprofits, most notably the Alliance to Defend Freedom, formed in the 1990s by evangelical extremists including James Dobson, founder of Focus on the Family, and Bill Bright, founder of Campus Crusade for Christ. It is one of the most powerful far-right legal interest groups in the United States. The ADF and its allies have been, quote, shopping around almost identical anti-trans bills to a number of state legislatures, and have usually failed, which makes the Alabama Senate vote an alarming development. Part 3. The Failure of Being versus the Insistence of Becoming I have said that the appeals to justice, morality, compassion, humanity are all ineffective at bottom, but they are necessary. These stories provide the human accounts of this oppression, and they contain a spectrum of human goodwill. Fathers speaking on behalf of their children, doctors on behalf of their patients, a gay congressman in Alabama speaking passionately towards his colleagues for the triumph of reason. I think that was Neil Rafferty, though I may be wrong. In any case, sir, you have my utmost respect and gratitude. These testimonies and the support of other citizens are made in good faith, and I take care to remember that justice takes a spectrum of varied efforts oriented toward a common truth, with many jobs to be done. Without my engaging in semantics here, they are fighting for the justice of vulnerable people, as am I. But I am fighting for justice to be found at the feet of those responsible for their suffering suffering which would not exist without the constant effort of decrepit ghouls like Tom Watley and Shay Shelnut. Thomas, you naughty fuck. Shay, you monstrous excuse for a man. In my lowest moments, when the void calls to me, promising oblivion's unknown relief from your fucked-up world, I will dig deep and stay alive out of spite because you wish I wouldn't. Say you did succeed in wiping out your degenerate cultural enemies like me. Remember that the world you want to create would pitch you to the side the moment you finished its work. Because people with so much rancor, so much evil, brutal stupidity in their hearts as you, are duly despised by everyone you meet your allies in evil, as well as the passerby that can smell the stink of emptiness that surrounds you like stale ectoplasm. They hate you. They do, whether you sense it or not. And at some level, judging you on your merit, you surely hate yourselves, too. You do not live for a noble purpose despite your claims. You pass right through the world, and for all your effort and bile and thrashing, you live and will one day die as a shadow of what you could have been. You were children once. Those children would despise you if they knew you now.
Because of the nature of my work, I wake up daily and must confront the reality that many people in power and many more they direct would like nothing more than for me to cease to exist, by brutal violence if possible. I've been run out of gas stations, insulted from across parking lots, chased at high speed by jacked-up trucks, it's always trucks, threatened in bars with mutilation and murder, subjected to sexual violence, and for many years nearly estranged from my family, who have thankfully come to respect my existence by my insistence and then by my absence. They aren't bad people. They are misinformed and afraid, often afraid for me suffering such things as I've described. I was not rejected by them or made victim of unknowable domestic violence and abuse as many of my trans brothers and sisters are. I was lucky by my circumstance to be born to decent people. Extraordinarily lucky. I mention this not to bring shame on them, they deserve none, but to illustrate a point. My determination of my being was not easily understood by them, and I would like to define what that determination is. What is the existential determination of a trans person? Well, of this trans person. At the most general level, as with any other person, the pursuit of my personhood is the process by which I live out the person I actively choose to be, in the form to which I aim. As Sartre described in Being and Nothingness, this personhood is a being that appears in the world and develops myself first as a lack of being, a thing of potential. Then, only by my own determinations of the person to which I am striving, do I set about creating myself as my own, by living out the details and actions of that striving. In simpler terms, my living is the making of myself by my own definition, and the reverse is also true. To ground this in my experience, I could say that who I am is a collection of my independences, and despite the boundaries set up by outside forces that exist around me and often oppose those independences, I've always had the tendency to find that which I do not choose for myself intolerably restraining. For many years in my youth, these restraints, the decision about my fate and state of living that were denied me, were the primary contributors of my wish to negate myself by suicide. This restraint upon my choices of being was so intolerable simply because I had well-defined for myself already the choices I would make if given the freedom to do so. I knew what I wanted. From a young age, I was stubbornly insistent upon my expressions of myself, all the while learning how to cooperate in those expressions with those of other people. These were not the fancies and delusions of a young person who didn't know what they wanted. These choices and expressions have survived to be fulfilled in my adulthood. They proved out once I had the freedom to pursue them. I was right all along. The arguments and confrontations with my restrictors, however protective or well-meaning they could have been, were proved factual by the truth that they've become for me today, by the functioning and thriving I have found in following my own personhood as I become it, in making myself. The application of this orientation to gender is obvious. So what do I seek in my gender transition? It is not a matter of becoming different than some innate self, which is pointed at by blind critics and bigots to be evidence of some psychological insufficiency, by which they mean subhumanity, or of some hidden desire to be unique or desire to be something I am not. I'm not a man who wants to become a woman, whatever that could possibly mean. I am someone who is becoming myself. Their criticism is gaslighting by definition, and nothing further. Their insistence upon defining the being of someone else, a domain that is not anyone else's to take for someone. Many claim that these individual choices of existence are the work of some 
transgender ideology or agenda of a political orientation or a character deficit. This is the rhetoric of dehumanization, which serves and aims to cultivate the conditions of rejection, of genocide. It's a familiar rhetoric. My gender transition is a long-term process of realizing the aspects and expressions of myself that make up my meaningful presence in the world. My gender expression, my mode of inhabiting my body, my clothing choices, movements, voice, social interactions, the way I exist in the world, is not simply outward expression, nor a point-to-point -point determination that a simple series of choices would be, like an actor playing a role. This expression is made by the orientation of my living them out from the seat of my consciousness. In existentialist terms, I am born, I am a lack of being. I make myself a being, I live out that being, and then I express that being, and thereby form myself by this process. The line between choice and natural expression is made fine, then dissipates. When it is lived, it is all me. This process is extraordinarily difficult. It is a matter of deciding what to be and how, though this is not done all at once but gradually, then relentlessly training oneself over time to practice living that out, disclosing that being in becoming. Anyone who has tried to change a childhood habit, to radically change a diet, to work towards health out of illness or sedentary, or to undertake any long-term work of your life, including living for your best interests, will well understand how grueling this process is. Consider further that while many aspects of these movements require radical change to habits or decisions, the case could be made that gender transition, particularly in Alabama and places like it, poses a risk and a suffering that is entirely missing from the previous examples. And then, lecherous slugs like Watley et al. come along and decide that the risk and the suffering should be greater, and impose that on us by threat of violence, which is a factual claim. Everyone's transition is different, as utterly unique as they are, but I will share one anecdotal testimony of my own, which I believe encapsulates my point here. When I came into awareness of my own mortality and situation around the age of 14, when I found that I profoundly disliked myself and sought to find out why, I began to suffer from a pervasive anxiety that tied my posture and structural health into knots. I spent years in constant, full-body physical tension, and continued to work to repair and retrain the damage that was done to my body through self-directed physical therapy. Incidentally, this damage, particularly to my jaw, shoulders, neck, and wrists, poses a constant obstacle to the goals and health of my gender transition. Among the most challenging aspects of gender transition is voice training, which is made immeasurably more difficult by tension and muscular habits of the neck and throat. I realized my gender identity at 17 and came out at 19. I consider my life to have truly started when I assumed this personhood formally to my friends and colleagues, when I asked them to call me Jackie when I explained them what I was doing with my life. And that was, in fact, the very beginning of my professional work that continues today. I have yet to medically transition with hormone therapy, and I'm consistently haunted by the feeling of being years behind myself, of having lost so much time and vitality from this delay that was environmental as well as financial. The reason I speak to this is thus. As I prevailed in these efforts to heal my body, as I was able to pull my shoulders back, relax my jaw and my hips, hold myself securely with my core, and breathe through my diaphragm, I found simultaneously that I was finally at home in my body, and that these conditions of health brought my expressions of femininity to bear. When I breathe well and my jaw and throat are in order, I more naturally speak in a female register. 
when I walk with strong and flexible hips and core, my gait and posture is feminine. Acting naturally has nothing to do with my genetics. It has to do with my state of being, which is the totality of me. I determined these things in the past, but I exist through them in the present as my natural mode of being. I believe that this experience is universal. Not only among trans people, many of my trans friends have related to and agreed with this assessment, but all people who can wrest the freedom of their own determination from the grasp of cretins who seek to contain them. Part 4. Now what? To quote Simone de Beauvoir, what is to be done? What is to be believed? What is to be done is to place the burden of existing on them, as they insist on placing the burden of non-existence on us. I must be very exact here. Doxing is illegal. So is harassment. So is protest, if these sludgemen have their way. That's in the script. Yeah, today they decided to illegalize protest. Redefine essentially any protest that goes on in public as rioting. That's normal and very good in a democracy. And we'll revisit that room in another time. The window shrinks. The iron heel presses further on humanity everywhere, always. I would never advocate such illegalities as I listed. If turnabout were fair play, someone could wish for their faces, their cars, their favorite restaurants, their businesses and investments, the business of their lives that they cannot mind themselves by the way they mind that of others, to be so publicly known by common awareness that they cannot operate as usual. They gotta eat somewhere. A secretary can only answer or reject so many calls on a workday. A social media manager can only mitigate criticism so much. Legal fees to handle lawsuits can only increase. More stories and angles can always be told. I can only advocate for an active, passionate free press and citizen education on these issues from among those actions. I do support the deconstruction and reform of the Alabama Democratic Party and a thorough investigation of every unscrupulous politician working today, enough to form a clear picture of their record and intent and actions outside their office so that the population can see them as they are. But there must be more, one would hope. And in a way there is. These apparent masters of spin deal in contradiction and doublespeak, and it is from this understanding that new progress can be made. Great consideration must be given to multifaceted strategies of propaganda for truth, propaganda for justice, a counterforce to the incessant lies, and this goes beyond simply telling the truth. The landscape is vast. People could call for them to resign, which they will never decide to do. Why the hell would they? Power does not simply give itself up. Protest and political pressure certainly have their place among this, and in many ways those must be leveraged forward according to cost, and never taken as ends in themselves. They seek to exploit our lives and do it every day. Their failure of spirit, of being, their rejection of humanity, are a weakness which we as free people do not have. What is the answer to violence? Striving for being that transcends it which inevitably creates new goals and ends outside of it, which writes and makes new history. The greatest lie that violence tells is that it is ultimate and all-powerful. Their game is suffering. Their opposition, our cause, is life which refuses it. It is compassion and solidarity which absolutely can transcend their pursuit of emptiness, because that is all they have and it is forever shallow and self-destructive under the right conditions. We need better city councils, better mayors, better sheriffs and judges, and thereby better decisions everywhere in our land, 
and there are experts and activists who do this work all the time that desperately need your help to mobilize these votes, to have your eyeballs on their work, your dissemination of their information. We need citizen councils and neighborhood associations and for people to participate in them. We need mutual aid and collective care for each other. Get involved and be vocal. Meet all your neighbors and help them in any way they need and allow them to help you regardless of what you agree or disagree on. This is incredibly difficult sometimes, if not all the time, and complicated and inconvenient. But so is dying from the failure of our society. If nothing else, and if you can stand it, trade your true crime show of the day for the Gulag Archipelago and learn how evil functions beyond the individual, or the fifth watch through the office for some philosophy that interests and inspires you, or a Facebook coffee break with a bit of journaling. I hope this doesn't come across as scolding pedantry like I do this all the time. These are things that I constantly try to do, and I make all the mistakes of everyone else. Nothing that I say makes me better than anyone. But I do feel empty and hopeless when I can do something meaningful and don't for whatever reason. And usually that reason is just me. I'm compelled to do this particular work that I'm doing, and it's not for everyone, and it's not the only job to do. Just as the living out of your humanity, your being, is entirely yours to decide, to create, to develop, so is the way that you are uniquely capable of helping your world where you are. We need you. The world needs you. And what you can do. Part 5. Big Political Titties. <laughs> so why did I lead with big titties, besides the obvious? The first question in the minds of many people in regards to Shellnut, Watley, and their noxious ilk is, what the hell is so wrong with you? If they even hear about these efforts at all. The hypocrisy is obvious. This Twitter snafu, just another in a long line of repressed and brainwashed reactionary politicians who are caught in scandals involving the sexuality of people that they sought to criminalize. We would be here all day if I chose to list only the American examples of currently sitting politicians who have been caught with sex workers or illegal pornography or in extramarital affairs or with a history of domestic violence or with evidenced sexual assault and harassment. And one should never forget the 2015 threat made by State Representative Patricia Todd, whomst we stan, to expose her colleagues, plural, who engage in extramarital affairs while touting family values while appealing to the sanctity of marriage when it suits their efforts against LGBTQ marriage. Call me Miss Todd, I would love to chat. Now, I've accidentally made posts on my personal page which were meant for my professional page, though the two are basically synonymous, simply because I logged into the wrong one. I think everybody's done that. Now I would never say it, but anyone with a slight imagination could guess what hypothetical hijinks Watley could get up to with an anonymous egg Twitter account. One could guess that he's comfortable with trans people that he can privately sexualize, whereas he cannot get his kicks from trans children and teens. One would hope. I think it would be a cop-out to say that people like this are simply repressed, a product of an oppressive culture which they perpetuate, that this is simply a matter of shame and secrets and forbidden desires. It is similarly reductive to defend oneself against atrocities by claiming you were just doing your job, and this reduction does immense damage to the interpretation of this evil. There's always the possibility that they are simply sadists of convenience, as some people believe Mitch McConnell to be. Positions of power will always be sought out, and possibly more so by people who, well, <laughs> achieve great pleasure and personal satisfaction from the suffering of other people and the profit and privileges of controlling them are just bonus incentives. The money of the office surely isn't all. 
It's the money one makes outside of their office by way of it. That's real wealth, that of influence over the fate of others. I want to make clear that I will never judge someone based on their sexuality. And in my deepest, deepest, deepest Buddha heart, I have immense sympathy for people like Watley and Lindsey Graham, <laughs> allegedly, and many others that are in their way products of suffering. That sympathy informs their humanity. But within their being, it is so far overshadowed by their treachery against the human mission of others and themselves to be freely by one's own creation that it's negligible. Robbed of their expression, in betrayal of being itself, one could say, they turn their shadow against the world and try to purge out that which is uncontendable and contemptible within them. Their ideology and cosmology, their version of reality, the structuring of it, is, of course, informed and twisted by the always useful evangelical radicalism, by the omnipresent bastardization of morality that justifies the violence built into our current political system which makes them extremely useful puppets for capital and theocratic fascism, and fodder for the consequences that they seldom suffer on behalf of those controlling interests who are their bedfellows and masters. They are made profitable for, and thus profit from, the service of evil. They are given wealth, power, privilege, opulence, status among others who also live for nothing but domination and gain. Their forsaking of their freedom to be is a small expense for them in that pursuit, and it's horribly easy to make a career and a life out of it, and to accept it as replacement for the strife of becoming. And ultimately, the world they would like to bring about would be populated only by other shadow people, the hollowness of human potential wasted and begotten to walk upon the earth until inevitably, like the Nazis, like the state capitalists of the USSR, like the despots of all human history, and like today's fragmenting far right, they would eat each other and starve all the same forever. This is no far-off vision. I remind my colleagues and friends that every day, countless people go to work with the goal of being as productive toward genocide and atrocity as any teacher or doctor or activist is toward their work, and that, in our present conditions, their effort is like rolling a ball down a hill. Writing those bills is real hard work, isn't it, boys? For your clerks and underlings, I mean. Conclusion <sighs> This is not a political interpretation. It is endlessly, materially evident, and so baked into our ongoing, spectacular perception of our world that most people must reduce it to politics being politics in order to not reduce themselves to despair or near madness by looking deeply at the state of things as I feel I have done so many times. Despair, that for me, is usually and graciously intermittent, and only negated by my will to fight for truth. Madness that used to drive me to the brink of oblivion. These days, I'm only madness adjacent. It is the madness of impotent yet righteous compassion, of having to bear the empathetic pain of suffering millions with no recourse against it, the imagination that can conjure endless small pictures of individual worlds that are forever shattered daily. The empathy that can trace the despair that these children must be feeling, which may take them to the brink of oblivion and potentially beyond. The knowing that people are starving and suffering and working, not in the abstract, but in the placing of myself 
in their world, their world that is forever shattered one day or slowly ground down over their lifetime. That paralyzing futility that I feel and cannot allow myself to continue feeling is a submission more powerful and abusive than one law or another. It is the negation of the will to live in a free world, the uselessness and desolation sought by people who hate for a living. And it is intentional. The suffering is intentional. We must always resist it. Thank you for your time.